Amen. Thank you, team. Wonderful. Didn't they do a good job this morning? Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, team. It's good to see you all. I'm grateful that you are here. My name is Glenn, and I'm the pastor here at Willow Park Church South. And uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, we're one church. We have four locations, six congregations, and we're very thankful that you have chosen to come to the south this morning. And, uh, and we're, we're a close-knit community, and we're very much uh, family here. And we have community groups, and we have various things that, um, that are going on through the week. And this is just one uh, expression of who we are as a church um, and we're, uh, we're grateful that you're here. It's lovely to see David and Maureen Marshall. David, don't, even, don't stand up, but uh, he's not been well for quite a while. And David is a long-term servant of this congregation. And we're really glad that you are, you're here, my friend. So uh, and, uh, that's good. And, and Wendy, you did a good job with the women's conference. I heard nothing but good things. So uh, yes, she, uh, she's, it's good. It's been a good few weeks. So uh, normally at this time of, the, uh, of the, my message, I would give a recap as to what we're, we've been looking at the last few weeks, but I'm actually going to uh, entwine that through the message as we, as we go this morning, and you'll see the reason why. One of the things that happens when you're in ministry and you've been married uh, for as long as Sarah and I have now, which is uh, almost 24 years in a couple of weeks' time, our 25th next year, we got married when we were extremely young, basically practically teenagers, um, just in case those of you doing math as to how old, well, most of you know how old I am anyway, 30. Um, so we've been married a long time and being pastoral ministry, then it's very, very common, especially for young adults to seek us out, to ask advice about relationships and especially marriage. And it's always a joy to be able to walk through pre-marriage counseling uh, with young couples, and we've had that joy with a number uh, in, in this congregation. And there's always an aspect of time when we have to talk about uh, a certain thing that uh, probably, there's, there's probably, in, in my estimation, there's two uh, hot touch points in a marriage that can cause a lot of challenge. One of which I'm not going to be talking about today, which is sex. Uh, the second one is money. Money. And we are incredibly focused on money as a culture uh, and as a, as a generation. It's one of the things that, even if we don't talk about it, it's certainly something that's on the mind. I remember my grandmother saying to me that when poverty knocks on the front door, love leaves by the back. It's like... Wow, thanks, Granny. Uh, she wrote that in our wedding card. No, she didn't. Um, but you know what? As, as harsh as that is, she was a good Yorkshire in the early 90s. She, she was at that stage where I could say what I want, who cares, that kind of stage. I think I got to that about 10 years ago. She, she got that a bit later. But th- there is an aspect where it's incredibly important for young married couples to be to talk about money because our culture talks about money and basically gives us instruction on how to use our money. And so the last few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of telos, this good life, what is the thing that we are striving for. And money is one of the things that we see as tools in order to gain us what we think is the good life at the end of the day. So 
Why wouldn't we as a church, if we regularly talk about it with young adults, why don't we talk about money more as a church? It's a really good question. Really, I think there are two reasons why, generally speaking, churches like ours avoid talking about money. Number one is it's been horribly abused by churches in the past. There are people who are on TV right now who are saying, hey, you send in your uh, power gift and I'll send you a little bit of cloth that I've dabbed my forehead with and you can lay that on your body and you're going to get healed, but first you need to send me $50. And, you know, like I said, if I want to get angry really quickly, if I feel like I'm just too peaceful and I want to get angry, I, I, I watch guys like that on TV and I listen to Christian radio. Either one of those kind of does that for me. And so, but these, these so-called prosperity gospel preachers, I don't even like putting the word preacher, gospel, and prosperity together, has given the impression that the church is really after money. But we can't blame them. You actually have to go back uh, over a thousand years to see the route where we can see that especially a certain uh, Catholic time of history was, you know, you give money and then you'll actually spring your relatives out of purgatory. And so it's entwined into church history to abuse teaching about money in order to get money. That's the first reason why it's an uncomfortable message to talk about. The second reason is, probably more uh, significant, is that it hits really close to home. You start talking about money, things start to clench. Mm, Here we go. Because there's really only one outcome in your mind right now. Is he's going to encourage us to give. You've already gone there. And so, depending on what's going on in your head, and depending on what your telos is, and depending on what your level of generosity is now, then then there's this this idea that when we talk about money... it hits close to home. So why do we talk about it then before we get married? Because what happens is, you have this beautiful uh, young lady, this equally beautiful young man, they come together and they both have experiences and views about money, specifically how to use their money. You bring them together and generally it's two very opposite cultures coming together. You might have a spender, you might have a saver. You might have somebody who just says, you know, I don't know how much money I've got. I'm going to go and look at the hole in the wall, my ATM. Oh, I've got this much money. I'll take it all out. You might have one, and that's actually been part of pre-marriage counseling with certain couples. That's how they do their budgeting. Some of you are like, oh my goodness. Others of you are like, well, yeah. Is that not what's meant to happen? He says, I've got $400, so why don't I just take $400 and go and spend it on Whatever. And there's others you're like, you're just, you've got spreadsheets, you've got formulas in Excel spreadsheets, you, you're like receipts, you've got one of those little spiky things on your desk that you enjoy shoving receipts on top of. Yes. How many of you are there? Oh, come on. <laughs> just thank you, there you go. <laughs> so we talk about it because it's insanely important. And so here's my actual outcome. I'm going to give, show you my cards. My interest is not in the offering that we give as a church as much as how money actually reveals our hearts. And then what do we do about it? The idea of generosity is appealing to me far more than 
how much money you put into the offering bag. So I just want to show you my cards because those of you who've been around for the last seven years know that I am not that preacher that constantly is asking for money. So I feel like I have a good reputation to be able to go, hey guys, we need to talk about this because it's insanely important. And in fact, I would hesitate a guess that money is often, and the Bible says is the root of uh, love of money is the root of all evil. I would say that money is actually, even though my granny coached it in pretty harsh terms, there's some truth to that. Tension comes, especially in marriages. And if you're not married yet, it makes no difference. How you use your money is incredibly biblically important. 25% of Jesus' teaching has something to do with money and possessions. 25% of his teaching. So I could argue one week in every four, I'm going to preach about money. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what happens that day once a month. Um, but Jesus spent 25% of his time talking about money because we see money as the way that we get our telos, our good life, what we want. We see money as being the key. And we are, listen, we are fantastic at convincing ourselves. I'm going to give it all away. Like if if God just gave me this money, man, the things I could do for the kingdom. That's what we think, but then we've already heard that what we think doesn't actually result in action. Change of heart results in action. And so this is really, really important. So let's go through. This is a very simple preach. And I just want to encourage you towards generosity this morning. First of all, number one. um, Oh, let me just give you a couple of interesting things that I found out about uh, about money. I'm just going to read some of these facts um, that were done recently by a financial institute. Some of them are based just in America, some in North America. But I think that it's a good reflection of where we are in terms of Canada. One third of Canadians who bring home $75,000 or more annually are living paycheck to paycheck. One third. 75 grand a year, paycheck to paycheck. Most interestingly, 44% of them say it's due to dining out and entertainment expenses. Tell us. It's what their good life is. Um, the average cost of a North... <laughs> dads, uh, listen especially. The average cost of a North American wedding now tops $30,000. Emory University showed that the more you spend on a wedding, the more likely it is that your marriage may end in divorce. Couples who spend 20000 or more on their weddings are three and a half times more likely to get divorced as couples who spend five to 10000 on their wedding. That's a really interesting thing to talk around about dinner. If you've got daughters, especially, and you're in that tradition of spending wedding on daughters. And I'm also very conscious that there may be people in the room who spent more than 30000 on their wedding who are now panicking. So let's just all calm down. This is just... I just think it's an interesting... I'm going to move on. Uh, 27 billion... I don't know if Dan is here this morning. $27 billion annually are spent on gym memberships and health clubs. This is in America. So it's probably a couple hundred thousand in Canada. I don't know. $27 billion annually on gym memberships and health club services with an estimated... What percentage do you think go unused? What percentage of gym memberships are on their keys, but go unused. What do you think? 80%. 8-0. 
So we're kind of waddling around, but I got a gym membership, so I'm good. And I'm spending the money, so I feel happy about it. Well, I should add that they go, 80% of those memberships go unused after the first five months. Um, and this one I thought was interesting too. Remember, tell us, good life, do we have the right kingdom that we're heading for? When researchers followed groups of German homeowners five years after they moved into a new home, they all wound up saying they were happier with their newer home, but there was one problem. They weren't happier with their lives. Happy with the house hasn't changed my life because it's a heart issue. So, number one, absolutely undergirds everything to do with generosity. Number one, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Oh, okay. Well, we'll let's go through some of, the, some of these scriptures because I wasn't expecting them all on the same slide. So that's, that's all right. Uh, first of all, let me just give you a bit of a scripture bomb on all this. Exodus 19 verse 5, all the earth is mine. Job 41 verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Guys, we don't owe God money. Okay, Whatever is under the whole earth is mine. The reason we don't owe God anything is it's because it all belongs to him. It's like, I'll, I guess, you know, I, um, thanks dad, I, I'll lend you your car back. What do you mean you lend me my car back? It's my car. Well, I'll give it to you. That's, well, that's generous of you. It's, it's my car. So we don't actually owe God anything because it's already his. Haggai 2 verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Some of you are thinking, that's fine because I don't have any silver and gold. So <laughs> it's all good, God. Psalm 50 verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Again, I've got no beasts of the forest, all cattle of the hills. Whatever you have of that, Lord, you can have. That's no problem. However, Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 says this. Beware lest you say in your heart, oh, this is powerful. My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. It carries on. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That is a massive verse, and I wish it was just on a slide by itself. That is a massive verse for our culture. Listen to what it says. Beware lest you say in your mind. No, 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 no. Heart. Remember what I've been saying. What we think does not constitute to actual change in our lives, regardless of what Descartes said. So I think, therefore I am, is not true because I know the right thing to say. I know the right thing to do, but I still do it I still do the wrong thing because it's a heart issue. So what's the Lord say in this scripture? It is your heart. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might have given me, have gotten me this wealth. I work for it. It's mine. No, because the scripture actually says, no, I've given you the ability to earn it. See, our culture says, whatever is yours, whatever you do, whatever you set your mind on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. It's all about you. That's why Buddhism and Zen and mindfulness is so popular across our culture. Mindfulness is essentially Zen, which is essentially Buddhism. And Buddhism says there is no God. You don't need to submit to anything outside of you. You just need to find enlightenment in yourself. You are God. That's why our culture loves it. So by the way, if your children are taking part in mindfulness, in school, which the public school district is involved in, just so you know, Zen Buddhism. What they're actually doing is they're saying there is no God, you are God. 
which is completely contrary to this scripture that says, remember, those of you saying in your heart that you get power, that it's your hard work, you're wrong. Because here's the problem with making myself God. I suck at being a God. I cannot forgive myself. I cannot fix myself. I cannot do anything to actually find anything that as a human being I'm wired to search for. So the continual search for myself will actually only result in what the scripture says is, is, is death. It's just depressing. That's a sidetrack. If we have this view that God's owns everything, we live like it is, it changes everything about how we see our world. Now, I do need to say this. This is important. We have a very generous church. We really do. There are people sat in this room right now. I don't actually, by the way, know who gives what. I don't know that. So, there, I... I uh, that's just not information that we as a church organization, that we've decided not to allow the pastors to see that information for reasons that actually make sense, if you think about it, because that's just too much of a temptation to know who gives what. So I don't know what you give. What I do know, though, is that we have some very generous givers in this church. In fact, nationally, we are above what the national average is for giving to a church organization. So I praise the Lord for that. We have givers in this church. We have people who regularly give, and we have people who sporadically give. We have some people who are generous, but not to the church. And this is stuff we're going to be talking about. What does the scripture actually say about that? And then we have a third group, and this is very roughly speaking. We have people who aren't givers to anything. That... You know, giving a few bucks here and there is not being generous in their money. It's just, you know, more guilt-driven, often to alleviate a selfish desire. And so we have, we have all these different groups in the church. And my desire is that we would all move into the first group, that we would be generous givers. And we're going to talk about to whom and to how much and all that. We're going to talk about that. But for now, I just want you to know that I'm very grateful. I'm not kind of sticking it to the south as a congregation, we're actually year on year, we're, we're above from last year. Now, now listen to me, if you've gone, oh great, so I don't need to give, you don't get it. Because <laughs> I'm not talking about numbers, I'm talking about generosity. And so if you're thinking, well, there's no real need here, I won't give, that's, you're still not getting it. And so that's what we're going to actually be looking at over the next little while. It's really important. So first of all, everything belongs to God. Number two, why does God give us money? Why do we have money? Well, the scripture actually speaks to this. Number one, in, the, in the Ecclesiastes 5.19, it tells us God gives us money to enjoy. Look at this scripture. It's beautiful. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Have money. That's wonderful. That's great. God has given us money to enjoy. There are other scriptures that talk about eating really good meals, drinking really good wine, uh, going and enjoying our friends and interests. There's scriptures that speak to the enjoyment of money. So don't feel guilty because you're not giving all your money away. Second reason that the scriptures give us that God has given us money is to be generous. 1 Corinthians 29, verse 14, For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. We are surrounded by needs. 
We have people who are poor. We have the scriptures talk about people who are sick. We have missionaries. We have widows. We have the church. We have all sorts of different opportunities. And many people in this room are just looking for ways in which they can be generous towards the right thing. What does the scripture actually tell us when it comes to where we should give our money? Now, you may immediately, understandably go, well, he's going to tell us it's the church. Duh. Because he's a pastor. He's not going to say, hey, go and give your money to the Red Cross. As good as that is. But I want to make sure that I give you teaching as to why I say that. Because, again, if you know me well enough, you'll know that regardless of what I think, I try and tell you what the scriptures say. So what does the scripture say? Well, the scripture says that we need to be generous. So he's given us money to enjoy and to be generous. So, how we use our money is a mega theme in the Bible. Why does Jesus talk 25% of the time about money? This is my major point. It is the measure that Jesus seems to use to measure where our to measure our spiritual condition. Now that's really hard for us. But I'm going to show you some scriptures here where Jesus uses money which essentially reveals where our telos is, where our goal is, regardless of what we say our good life is, where our heart is actually oriented. It is the number one way of finding out our spiritual condition. Let me prove it to you. Matthew 6 And verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Ah, but he's talking spiritual stuff. No, he's not. Because treasures on earth do end up on a, on a, uh, on a, in a dump, in a, what do you call it here? It is a dump, right? We call it a tip in Britain. They do. Zoe loves to uh, wear a certain sweatshirt that I was given some 20 years ago. And, um, and you look at it, it's actually doing really well for a, for a sweatshirt, isn't it, love? But you look closely, you can start seeing evidence that it's 20 years old. Now, if she's still got that in 20 years' time, I'd be really impressed. Because essentially, eventually, everything that you can grab hold of and everything that you earn and get hold of will eventually end up in a on a tip, on a dump. So Jesus is saying, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the scripture tells us that more than your volunteering, more than your church attendance, more than your Bible reading, more than your prayer life even, more than your theology or anything like that, this is the way that you know where a heart is oriented is by the pocketbook. By the pocketbook. If you really, Jesus said, if you really want to know where someone's heart really resides, look at the way they use their money because it reflects what we worship most. So, is it obvious by the way you spend your money where your heart lies? Now, what you might go, well, that, because if your telos is entertainment and just having fun, or it could be Anything. It could be family, it could be hunting, it could be boats, it could be houses, it could be cars, it could be just, it could be something that's not as tangible as that, just something that's outside of the kingdom, and you spend money towards that, then God is saying then your spiritual condition is skewed. It reflects what we worship most. 
where our affection is and what our attention is on. Now then, if our telos is God's kingdom, then we will give and spend accordingly. Luke 8, verse 18. And I've used this scripture already once in this series. A ruler, rich young ruler, this is the story, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? So remember, he knows what the right telos is, what the right good life is. He's saying, how do I get it? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is a good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. We can just show, if you just look at the last couple of verses there. One thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, something to understand from this scripture. Jesus is not saying to us that in order for us to get to heaven, we need to give all our money to the poor. The reason I know he's not saying that is because that's completely contradictory to the rest of scripture. The rest of scripture says in order for you to get to heaven and to know Jesus, then you must submit your life to him, recognize him as Lord, confess that he died on the cross in order for your sins to be forgiven. And by grace and grace alone, we're accepted into heaven. But he does say right here, sell it and you'll have treasure in heaven. Why? Why does he say that? Because what Jesus is actually doing is he's identifying and showing. Remember last week when I said that God shows us and grows us through tests. He was testing this young man by identifying and showing him what it was that resided on the throne of his life. What it was that he was worshipping. That's what he was doing. He was essentially saying what you have on your throne needs to be removed and I, Jesus, need to be replaced I need to replace it. And by doing that, you'll actually be demonstrating, you'll actually be following through with the orientation of your heart. And you will have treasure in heaven. He says a surprising thing in verse 23. He says, for he was extremely rich. Can I tell you, if you have a place to live, not even if it's not yours, if you just have a bed to sleep in, If you have meals, if you had an education up to the age of 16, if you had vaccinations, and let's say you even drive in a car, you are richer. In fact, statistics tell us that you are in the top 1% of the richest people to have ever lived on this planet. We are rich, extremely rich. Now, that might be really difficult because you're going, I don't know. I've seen some rich people. They don't look like me. They don't drive what I've got. They don't live where I live. And it's really easy to get very judgmental about people who God has decided in his wisdom to give wealth to in a way that we see as rich. Because what we do is go, well, I haven't got that. They should be more generous. Here's an interesting fact. Okay? This actually shows that the more money you have actually does not mean that you get more generous. 
Actually, statistics show that the lower the income bracket, the more generous people are. Isn't that interesting? So this idea of I will be generous when I become a rich person actually falls apart statistically. And some of you may be in an organization where you know that to be true. It's often people who have little that give the most. But we are all rich. We're all extremely rich. You see, notice the rich young ruler wants to go to heaven. But Jesus pointed out in last week's sermon, I talked about your onlys, your only son, Isaac. Is it possible that he's saying your only is actually wealth and money? And we need to dethrone that. See, something on the throne of our hearts often needs removing when it comes to money. And Jesus targets our affections. He targets our telos. He targets what sits on the throne of our life. And he says, I want that. And is it because he wants it, because he wants to make us miserable? In fact, it's the opposite. Because as I said last week, that which we worship the most makes us the most miserable. Because our anxieties and our concerns and our anger are often rooted in that being actually taken away. So I said last week, if our throne is occupied by children and our family, that if anything happens to our family or children, anxiety floods in. And that's not how the way God has created us to live. And I said that often a sign of what is enthroned in our lives is actually the question, what is it that makes you most anxious? What is it that makes you most angry? Because that is an indicator of what we are worshipping. And that's convicting for me. And I shared last week, you need to listen to last week's message, but I shared last week that God has been highlighting some things that have been sitting on some thrones. And the thought of those things being taken away made me anxious. And so then I had an opportunity to actually bring those to God and go, okay, I want to live differently. And it might be that for you, money sits on that throne. And so that needs to be removed. But grace is what removes it. It's incredible scripture in Luke 19. It says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. I've shared the story before of one of the things that happened in the Welsh revival in 1904. And the story, and, and it's actually documented in the, in the press of the day, is that the miners, many of whom had become Christians overnight, these hardened, abusive, alcoholic loudmouth, cussing miners become Christians overnight, some of them weeping into their pints, literally, as they are there getting drunk before they would normally go home and beat up their family, that the conviction of God would come upon their lives, they would seek out a minister, and they would come to know Jesus. And what was happening is one of the signs was that they would be returning all the things that they had stolen from the mines. So the picks and the shovels and the wheelbarrows and all this stuff and all the, um, all the wrenches or spanners as they're called in Britain were all being returned. So much so there are pictures that says to the miners as they're coming through the gates of the work, please stop returning stolen property. And it was a pile of stuff. Guy, we don't, we don't know what to do with it anymore. Just keep it. Isn't that amazing? And the reality is, is that when grace grips your heart, 
when Jesus sits on the throne of your life, when you live in such a way that grace dictates, then you are free from the need of serving that thing, that it doesn't matter whether you have much or you have little because you've got Jesus. It actually results in our actions following and we become generous. So generosity is the result of a recognition of the grace that God has given us. It dethro- it's been dethroned. Money has been dethroned. Jesus sits on the throne. And if you have him, I have everything. So therefore, God, it's all yours anyway. I'm going to give it back to you. You live with an open hand. It's freeing. It's simple. Now, do you have to fight for that? Absolutely. You do have to fight for that. But generosity is bred from a recognition of how much we have been given ourselves. See, Zachariah's spending decision that we just read about reflected the grace that had been shown to him. And what is his response? Immediately, he opens his pocketbook. Have it. Because it was his number one priority was filling his pocketbook. So God goes after that. So what I'm actually saying this morning is, is a joy-filled, freeing message. If you want to get out from under this feeling of not having enough money, if you feel the pressure, if, as like my granny said, you know, poverty's knocked on the front door and love is left by the back, if that's the way it feels, then I want to encourage you, rather than looking at money, I want you to look at Jesus. And I want to ask yourself the question, what is it that you have on the throne of your life? And is it possible that you see money as the thing that's going to get you that thing? And that that money is enslaving you? Now, some of you will be going, yeah, that, that's how I feel. Because I look at my neighbors and they seem to have so much. My wife and my husband, they actually want more than I can give them. And I don't seem to be able to work enough hours, or I don't seem to be able to get that job, or I don't see my business seems to just not be doing what it needs to do in order to give me the lifestyle that will make people happy. While deep down, all the time knowing that even if you had all those things, wherever you go, there you are. Your heart just follows you. Because then it won't be what your neighbor has that you want, it's what the neighbor down the street has that you want. Because if I can just get that, then I will be happy. If I can just get these certain types of cushions on my seat, then I'll be happy. And as ridiculous as that sounds, that's the culture we live in, right? I've got to have this, and it's got to match that, and it's got to be in a house that looks like that. Then I'll be happy. And we put ourselves under tremendous amounts of pressure, and it's enslaving, and it's depressing, and it's anxious-ridden, which is why it didn't take too much too many ticks of the stock market for men and women to be throwing themselves out of buildings a few years ago. I'm not making that up. Stock market goes down, so do people's bodies. Because their whole life is camped out on the need to have more. Because if I, what did uh, Goodfellow say? When is rich enough? Just a little bit more. No, Rockefeller, not Goodfellow. Rockefeller. I knew that was wrong. Where's Goodfellow? Goodfellow's the movie. They didn't say that. When is rich enough? I'm paraphrasing. But he did say, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So you go, I've got this. Yeah, but now I just want a little bit more. That's enslavement. 
So Jesus comes along and says, dethrone that, I'll give you freedom. I'll give you freedom. You see, in Acts 22 and verse 42, it describes this beautiful church that I think shows in many ways the type of church that we could strive to be. And they were a generous people. So it's not just so much about the giving, it's about the generosity. And generosity is relative. But what you cannot escape is what you know is generous and what you know is actually you holding on. So I could come along and I, could, and I won't because I can't and I wouldn't want to. But I could look at your spending and go, oh, well, you don't seem to be very generous. Or, wow, you give a lot of money. But you can still give a lot of money and not be generous. And we're going to look at that next week. Next week, what we're actually going to do is answer some of these questions, and I have them on the screen. Oh, one at a time. Beauty. Okay. Is tithing biblical now that we're out of Old Testament times? Big question for Christians. If this question has not crossed your radar, then you're either a young Christian or you've been running away hard from this whole issue. If you don't even know what the word tithing means... Then, the, then either you've been a Christian a long time and just gone, ah, no, I'm not listening to that. I tithe my time. Good for you. Let's see what the scripture says about that. Well, I tithe, I, I tithe my, uh, my gifting, my talents. T- t- what is it? Treasure, talents, and... Pardon? Time, talent, treasure. Well, so I, I, I tithe my time because the, if you look at the amount of hours I spend, okay, let's just, let's, let's just get down to the core of what the scripture says about tithing. Never mind what we think, okay? That's the first thing we're going to look at next week. You see, I'm just giving you more reason to be here in your hundreds next week. Number two, how much should I give? Number three, should my giving, this is a hot one, should my giving go to the church or to other Christian organizations? See, as a culture, we love having control, which is fine, but we need to know where, what God says where our money should go. And that, by the way, in case you're trying to think, oh, I know what Glenn's going to say, you probably don't. You probably don't. Um, number four, is it right to expect a reward when we give? You give 10 bucks, God's going to give you 100 full back. Have you heard that teaching? Again, that whole thing that makes Pastor Glenn angry. Or if I give this, then God owes me. Well, no, it belongs to him anyway. So why does he owe you anything? You woke up this morning. That's going to be a good point next week. Should should giving vary by income? Should I give to the church if I'm in a lot of debt? These are good questions, right? And then, does God expect me to give if I'm struggling financially? would be the final one. Does God expect me to give if I'm struggling financially? Another one that I'm going to throw in there that I've just thought about, which is very important, should I give if my spouse is not a Christian and they have a completely different framework? What do you do then? And these are questions that actually come out and are very important. But for today, here's what I want to leave you with. What is sat on the throne of your heart? And if it is just that a little bit more, then I want you to know that it all belongs to God. Every last cent, every fluffy, color-coordinated cushion, every shiny car and every not-so-shiny car, every blade of grass, every twinkle of every star, 
just made that up. That was quite poetic. All belongs to him. All to make Jesus look good. You've been given everything in this world in order to make much of Jesus. So you can point at your beautiful house and I celebrate with you. And your house points to the grace and goodness of Jesus and I want you to tell people about it. You can look at your old, clunky, rusty car that breaks down every other mile and you can point Jesus to, uh, you can point them to Jesus as you celebrate that. See, everything we have is to make much of Jesus because as Jesus hung on the cross, he was making much of his Father's will. And his Father's will was that that was punishment was taken for our sakes. And so everything that we have, every bit of electronic, every bit of time, every line on your balance sheet, and some of you like, he can have it. They're all his anyway. Which is why, you know, I got into some trouble a few months ago from our country singing fans, of which there are more than I realized. He said with some regret that the idea of Jesus take the wheel, you never had it. It's not yours to give away. Some of us are barely in the car. Some of us aren't even on the right road. You can have it all, Jesus. That's very good of you. It's all mine. What I do is I get you to give back because the generosity shows people more of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? that your generosity and your heart can actually point, Jesus, point people to Jesus away from him. See, that is the emphasis of my teaching when it comes to generosity. Next week, we're going to get really practical, but I need you to understand that this week, it's all about what sits on your throne of your heart. It all belongs to God, that money is for us to enjoy. Money is for us to be generous, and money is an indicator of our spiritual state. And so in reflection of that, we can look to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm thankful that you have given me what you have given me. There's a beautiful little video. I may try and show it next week. It's very apt. I think um, somebody shared it on Facebook this week um, that talks about generosity at Christmas. Let me, try and, let me try and get that to show you. But it's all been given by his grace and by his love. We have much to be thankful for. So, in the light of that, this is why I left the offering to the end. Not, not in order to make you feel guilty, but actually to, for you to be conscious. Now, it might be that you give on a monthly basis straight out of your bank account. And by the way, you can do that online. That's beautiful. And we encourage that and love that. Some of you put it into the bag. That's great as well. Either way, whether you let the bag pass, this is not a drive-by guilting. Okay? Oh, they let the bag pass. You know, it's not that. What I want us to do is just take these moments to actually consciously think about generosity and what sits on the throne of our heart. That's why we're doing the offering now. And so Josh is going to lead us in, in a song, and we're going to take our, our offering, our generosity, and we're going to give it to the Lord, give it back to him. No, that's wrong, because it's already his. I'll have to think about that. And we're going to pray, and we're going to think about Jesus and his sacrifice and his generosity and his love towards us as shown on the cross. So why don't we stand together and let's pray.